Hello, I'm Matthew, and I'm an interpreter. I'm not interpreting at the moment, obviously, so I don't know what I'm doing wearing this headset. And this is Troublesome Terps, apparently. Matthew? Matthew, are you there? Hang on, Alex. Should we should we text him or something? Uh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, this is Troublesome Terps, the podcast about topics that keep interpreters up at night. No kidding. So Jonathan is currently on assignment or traveling, we're not quite sure, but we hope he'll be joining us any moment now. Um, so while we wait for him, I will already start by introducing our Bavarian buffoon, Alexander Gansmeyer, who once again joins us from Munich. Is that right? That is absolutely right. And the hills are alive with the sound of podcasting over here in Bavaria. So hi. Mm. <laughs> hi. <laughs> And from Brussels, I'm your friendly but certified humor-free Eurocrat, as we'll see during the show, I'm sure, Alexander Rexel. And um, <laughs> you may have gathered by now that we'll be dealing with a very serious topic today. Um, Alexander gave it away by tweet earlier. Uh, and the serious topic today is humor in interpreting. Uh, now, having two Germans for this kind of topic is a bit <laughs> unfair um, to Jonathan. Maybe that's why he's joining us later. I don't know. So we figured we'd give him a strong partner, and that's Matthew Perey. Matthew is a freelance interpreter and interpreting trainer, and also a seriously funny guy. You may know him from his videos on uh, Lourdes de Rioja's YouTube channel, A Word in Your Year. Welcome to the show, Matthew. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, we... We've had this topic sort of uh, cooking for a while and talking about humor and um, humor about interpreting, humor in interpreting, interpreting humor. And of course, we immediately thought of you because um, while some of the videos you've done with Lourdes are on serious matters, uh, of course, there are also quite a few funny ones in there. And even the serious topics you often approach with a little bit of humor, such as the um, technology and interpreter training video that you did not... Um, too long ago and maybe before we start with the podcast why don't you tell us a little bit about how this whole cooperation with Lourdes came to be right well I actually started doing uh writing and performing before I became an interpreter and right. then as an interpreter sort of gradually learned to keep it out of my <laughs> uh, work in the booth to try not to sort of get carried away with the showing off side of it that nobody really wants and um and then uh, luckily, I've slowly managed to worm my way back into doing that kind of thing when we had quite a free format. So Ludus would suggest a topic mm -hmm. and uh, I would say something like, okay, could we do, do that in the form of a sketch? And to my amazement, she would say, yeah, fine, whatever you like, let's do it. <laughs> um, yeah. And so we did. We just kind of experimented in a way that would have been very difficult, I think, for any sort of official channel. I suppose, yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of the the thing that I like about uh, the videos because in some of them you can sort of see that that you are improvising or that Lourdes is um, somehow surprised by where you're going with uh, with things. But I, I think it makes for great uh, <laughs> great material. It makes um, for great watching. That's for sure. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so what I wanted to know as well is is how that decision happened for you to sort of move away from the stage and then moving into the booth as, um, yeah, if that's a way of putting it. Well, I guess um, there aren't that many avenues open to you as uh, a, a writer and performer. I was doing literary translation and I was doing quirky oh. performance poetry. And at some point I realized I had to earn a living. Yeah, and that's I, fair. I didn't really want to do the kind of written translations that I saw out there and interpreting and especially interpreting at a multilateral uh, international organization was very appealing because it was about mm. talking to an audience and it was about mixing with lots of people from different cultural backgrounds and having that kind of human contact. So uh, I was also extremely lucky that the European Commission was offering bursaries to mm -hmm. train people. So not only did you not pay fees to do your postgraduate interpreter training, but you were given a small allowance if you were selected. 
to cover your living expenses. So you could say, well, I'll just take a gamble on this weird thing of listening and speaking at the same time. Might not be able <laughs> to do it, but I'll have a bit of fun in Brussels for a few months. And when yeah. I fall flat on my face and go back home with my tail between my legs, I won't have lost much money and I might have made some new friends. Uh-huh. And so <laughs> I left. left. Um, and and um, did, did you have any previous exposure to foreign languages or, or did that really start when, you, no, that probably didn't start when you went under the stage because you, you probably already had Spanish or something else at that point? That's right. I was a linguist um, yeah. as an undergraduate and I really started specializing in the sixth form when I did A-level. I started uh, Spanish A-level from, from scratch. I was kind of already into French, but I'd say it was Around about 16, the turning point, which is quite late. I think a lot of people would consider that quite late to start getting into language. But uh, mm. looking on the bright side, <laughs> I um, feel that the very, very solid mother tongue that I'd acquired by that time has always stood me in good stead. So I've never had any sort of doubt in my mind about how to say something so that the folks back home can understand me. <laughs> you know, like I've lived in a linguistic limbo. Yeah, funnily well, I say enough, never. Yeah. <laughs> funnily enough, that's that's often a bit of a of a stumbling block for people because you you know uh, when people think of interpreters, they think well they they need to know foreign languages very very well, which is true, but you also need to know your own you know your mother tongue very 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 well. Exactly. I think the the perfect thing is for your languages to be just bad enough for your mother tongue to still be okay. (laughs) But I think also that's kind of the secret of interpreting, right? So nobody can actually tell that you're not exactly following all the right rules of the grammar of your mother tongue. So you kind of get away with it. That's at least how I see it. I hope. Yeah. I hope anybody agrees with me on that. (laughs) That's also kind of the reason why I don't do any written translations. But yeah. (laughs) But I I wanted to go next to, um, yeah, towards the topic, I, I think. Did did you did you always have have kind of a this sense of of humor or um because because I've I've tried writing comedy a little bit and I find it incredibly hard although I do think that I have a bit of a sense of humor but um, I don't know do, do you think that that one needs to have a certain talent for that or is is it is it just hard work or how how does it feel for you because I know you've written routines I think on. Um, you know, EU comedy kinds of stuff, for example, not just language-related stuff? Yes. Um, That's very difficult to to answer because I'm not sure there is a a kind of rule that's applicable across the board. So I think, in a way, some people are sort of condemned to live in a, a prism of seeing everything through comedy, that they experience life in a in a in a different way. And so I find the the whole question about, you know, is, is it hard or easy to make something funny? I think there's nothing funnier than uh, someone taking themselves seriously. And <laughs> uh, I actually moved to Germany from Britain because I have a soft spot for the German sense of humor. In Aww. Germany, people are constantly taking all kinds of things really seriously. Uh, yes. It's it's hilarious, and you know, like small talk. One of the first things that happened to me in Britain, if you're out in the street when it's pouring with rain, and you bump into a neighbour, you'll say something like, "Turned out nice again," and they'll <laughs> probably reply something like, "I know, it's like Barbados out here," and that that's not a joke. That's how we do small talk. That's small talk yeah. in my culture. Yeah. So when I went to Berlin, I tried the same thing: pouring with rain, bump into a neighbour, stop him, and say. Turned out nice again. And he what? gives me the kind of expression you reserve for somebody you fear may be suffering from some kind of mental illness. Yeah. <laughs> and says, this is what I consider to be bad weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. The, 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 the great thing about German humour is they wouldn't just call it bad weather. We'd ha- they would have like a 16-letter-long adjective describing exactly what kind of bad it is. That's very it's true. Brilliant. So I was I have been trying to, le- to learn German for ages and I was explaining to my German tutor that German is only beginning to click with me that I realize that German is to language what Lego is to architecture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Absolutely. <laughs> By the way, that's Jonathan Downey, as you could tell, <laughs> who just joined us, as uh, we said earlier. So welcome, Jonathan, to the show. Um, and uh, Didn't as miss a beat. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he jumped right in because, of course, he spent some time in the beautiful city of Bonn, if I remember correctly. So he knows a thing or two about Germans as well. And um, That's right. It, if anybody's listening to it who's not an interpreter or a translator and thinks, well, you know, how are they going on with all that stereotypes now? But I think that's, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's something that interpreters are quite good at. And of course, we know that stereotypes are stereotypes and don't necessarily describe a whole culture. But I think it's a useful tool for us when it comes to um, reading a room and and sort of uh, already having... Um, I don't know, there's a nice fancy word for that, which doesn't come to me right now. A heuristic, I guess, for, for working mm. with delegates and for working with other people. Would, would, you say, would you think that's accurate? Nobody wants to answer that, Alex. I would just check in my professional indemnity insurance to see if I can get sued for libel. <laughs> But, but I, th I think the thing is, I was chatting with my boothmate once and we were, we were joking about stereotypes and she said the reason why stereotypes exist is because they're accurate. And you yeah, can walk in, exactly. Yeah, you, you can walk into a room and when someone says, you know, hello, uh, I'm the French chief executive, you have a, a vague idea of where this guy is going to go. Yeah. yeah. Or, or the one I've noticed, I don't know if you'll find the same, Matthew, whenever someone says, hi, I'm um, Laurent and I'm from the Syndicat, Instantly, I've got the next three hours planned out in my mind. Yes. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I think I'm the only one who didn't get that, so I feel kind of left out. But that's okay. Yeah, a, uni <laughs> a, a, a French unionist, uh, um, workers', rep workers rights activist, basically. Yes. Ah. Hey, have you come across those guys, Matthew? Because in my experience, they're almost too predictable to be real. <laughs> I, keep, I keep wondering whether someone's like, got a hand up their back controlling them like a puppet. <laughs> no. The union is, I think, yeah, you're playing with fire here, Jonathan. <laughs> no, I, I think it's because I was doing a social policy job recently with my boothmate. And this is how we got talking about stereotypes, because if I tell you that the first speaker was an, uh, a Scottish undersecretary of state, then we had a fiery Irish trade unionist, and then we had a French trade unionist who enjoyed the theoretical side of policy, most interpreters with experience in those areas would go, I know exactly how that went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that wasn't a great topic to talk about. So I, I, I apologize. <laughs> we can just move right along. The, uh, uh -huh. yes, leaving aside uh, stereotypes, the point I was trying to make, probably very clumsily, was that it, it, the, the real joy is in people taking themselves seriously. Yes. Mm. Regardless of the form that takes in different, different cultures. And... Uh, kind of ploughing on regardless as well, which I think is something that happens at a, at a lot of meetings. If something is, is slowly unravelling, uh, I, yes. I take huge pleasure in that. <laughs> how, how does everyone else manage it when you can see that the, the meeting is gradually going off the rails and, you know, everyone's dying for a cup of coffee to save themselves from the carnage and you still have another three shifts to go? Well, I, I, I try to take the same approach as Matthew is, is to take the piss, basically, <laughs> to sort of uh, take some delight in, you know, a, a slowly happening train wreck. Um, but sometimes it takes a while for the, for, for the cringing to go away, and then the humor kicks in, and that's nice. Have you got any stories that you can tell us, Matthew, of meetings that slowly went downhill? Of course not, no. Highly bound by confidentiality. <laughs> no, obviously, that's very true. Plus, the whole anecdote part of the episode is going to come later, so we need to save that for, for the. I've got the a, 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 a story about the, the Lego of architecture, as Jonathan put mm. it, because I don't work from German. And that's something I also get huge pleasure from, is <laughs> not work from German. And was. But there are very few times when uh, you know it kind of reaches its its real peak. But one of them is when somebody else is working from German. That's that's particularly pleasurable. Um, yeah. And there are also moments when I'm interacting with the language, often uh, disastrously, and it doesn't matter because it's not my job to use it properly. <laughs> and uh, I was struggling when I first 
arrived in Berlin and at the same time kind of swept away by beautiful things like how the word for glove was handschuh or hand shoe. So yes. I was thinking about of course. Uh, something that comedian Richard Herring said of, you know, it's really absurd that the French don't have a word for potatoes and call them earth apples. Yes. So he goes up to the French person and says, why on earth do you call potatoes earth apples? Why don't you call apples sky potatoes? <laughs> and, you know, I thought that was really good. So I thought, All right, I'm going to do the same thing with German. The, the next time somebody mentioned the word handshoe, I said, ah, why do you call your gloves your handshoes? Why don't you call your shoes your foot gloves? And they didn't laugh. The, the yeah. reason they didn't laugh was that in order to say the word foot gloves in German, I had to say Fußhandschuhe or foot hand shoes. And so they weren't really clear. Yes. Point that I was trying to make. I love it. But that, that brings us right through it. You know, I mean, how humor sometimes just doesn't travel across language barriers. And it's so unfortunate, especially with puns and, you know, what oh. and that kind of thing. Um, but I think we've all had the experience of, you know, maybe not a meeting going completely off the rails, but maybe the meeting president, you know, trying out his sense of humor in a foreign language and uh, you know just getting crickets from the room basically oh no the, the the worst one is and i have only had this twice in my career and both times i've wanted to just run away you know how speakers sometimes start with a joke and you think it's okay it's just a joke it doesn't work so you say something like the speaker has made the joke please laugh you know but have the you speaker ever actually the done that i've never done that yeah, i was I, I gonna ask you that I, I have done that twice. So both times I did that. Um, okay. In fact, I've done that more than twice. A few times where the speakers made a joke that just doesn't work. So one example was I was doing one um, interpreting for one speaker in the church, and he said, "You know, um, faith isn't blessed assurance. It's blessed. Uh, sorry, it's not blessed insurance. It's blessed assurance." Ooh. Problem is, assurance and insurance in French the same word. So I say in French, the speaker has made a joke which doesn't work very well in French. Please laugh. And so the, the French audience laughed dutifully. <laughs> and then he spent the next half hour riffing on that idea. Of course they did. <laughs> and you they think, do, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> introductory joke is, is fine. We can find something. But please don't riff on a pun for the next half hour. <laughs> but that happens to me a lot as well, where you have... So I do a lot of motivational speaking and they usually have some sort of jokes in there to keep it engaging as well, especially in the beginning to kind of lighten the mood. And then they use that to riff on the theme of their motivational speech. Mm. And what I usually do is I try to kind of find, depending on whether the joke works or not, because sometimes they, they travel in German. Usually if, if, this, if the joke is straightforward enough, it usually travels in German. If it's anything a little more creative, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, but if it doesn't work, you just kind of find your like lane if that makes any sense and you're just going to stick with it through the speech and so far that's worked every single time okay yeah. matthew can you can you come and dig us out of this one How, <laughs> as a as a as a humor professional what yeah. would you do in in crazy situations like speakers having a pun as their talk title oh wow um well i think uh, rather than give advice i think uh, that looking at, at, at how we look at it. Uh, I, was, I was saying before, people in, it makes a connection, people enjoy it. And I think sometimes people enjoy jokes too much. And that's one of the problems for the interpreter is mm. that expectations are very high because everybody really appreciates some light relief. So they're thinking, oh, I'm really looking forward to this. And that makes us feel under, under more pressure. <laughs> and also I find working for Brits, this may also be a cultural thing, that it's Uh, the expectations yes. I feel are are even higher, and the, the the danger that somebody will riff on something uh, seems to increase too. So oh, I yeah. with, a, with a Spanish chairman who said uh, literally that ethereal nymphs were helping with the drafting of a document. <laughs> <laughs> ethereal nymphs floating around, looking over people's shoulders, and helping them get the wording right, oh. and it was pretty bizarre. <laughs> In the original Spanish, and and I thought, well, I've, I've definitely heard that, and I need to say something. So I said, uh, we have a fairy godmother, and I thought I kind of got away with it. And then yeah. he said, in this case, it was me. I had to say, <laughs> this is a fairy godfather. Oh, no. It was me, and I was really hoping he was going to change the subject, and he did, and we yeah. just carried on with the meeting. Good for you. <laughs> Went away for one, 
and came back from lunch and he said, I hope everybody's had a nice lunch. And the UK delegate raises his hand. Yes, UK. And he says, no, Mr. Chairman, I've not had a nice lunch because my digestive process has been disturbed by visions of you in a tutu wearing a magic wand. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and there was only one person in the room who knew why he'd said that. It was you. Worst was case scenario. Any eye contact with the Spanish people at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is too funny. I, and the thing is, as well, is you hit situations where the, there's kind of in, internal company humour. Yeah, you exactly. You have no idea why everyone's finding that funny. Yeah. And you have to go like, okay, I'm just going to interpret this literally and hope that someone understands it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's super challenging, though, and that actually happens quite a bit. And, and Matthew can probably confirm because we work in, in the same sort of context where you have a, a working group, for example, in a European institution that meets on a weekly or monthly basis. And, and they spend a lot of time with each other, not only the meeting room, but also outside. And sometimes they go on, on you know, on trips together and they have a meeting somewhere else and then they travel and then they go out together in the evening. And that of course builds, builds up a lot of rapport and, and also comes with um, sort of running, running gags and in jokes and, and that kind of thing. And of course mm. they, they will use that, you know, because it's a closed meeting, it's not a public conference or anything. And that really is, is difficult. And basically you're just flying by the seat of your pants and, and you just, yeah, basically, translate word for word and just hope it somehow gets gets through so i find that very very difficult but how do you how do you deal with that because i find that oftentimes they make jokes and you as the interpreter from the situational awareness that you hopefully have mm. you know that it is a joke that they're making but you don't understand the context you don't understand the joke and you don't understand why it's supposed to be funny but yeah. you understand that this is supposed to make make people laugh and mm. in your instance how do you wh what do you usually do well, I, I would probably usually just stick to the original very closely and then maybe throw in a, you know what I mean, or something like that, you know, to yeah. sort of give a, a little bit of an explicit hint that this is supposed yeah. to be uh, an, an in-joke, I, I guess. Yeah. That's exactly uh, that's exactly what I do. That is literally exactly what I do. I usually, if, if that kind of stuff happens, I try to, you know, just stick very closely to it. And then I say, in a very kind of like exaggerated way, like, if you know what I mean, wink. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that you kind know. of thing. And I think that the key really is in, in with any kind of humor is, I think, to be really, really quick on your feet. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the big challenge for most interpreters is that you, you, you're kind of still processing and you want to get it right. But the, the key really is to get something out quick. So because there's nothing worse than seeing, you know, everybody else laugh as a delegate and, and still waiting for your interpreter to catch up with. Yeah. I think that's the worst, the absolute worst. I've got that a new, very true. new one now, thanks to Alex for my repertoire. <laughs> the variation on the yeah, yeah, please, please laugh now is just saying if you know what I mean, but in a silly voice, <laughs> like doing it, May West, doing it as exactly. As I do it exactly like My West. Thank you very exactly. much for watching that. I do you're straight. You're totally straight, and then you're, if you know what I mean, and then you're back <laughs> to being straight again afterwards. <laughs> oh my god. Well, maybe this was the inspiration. Thank you for catching that, Matthew. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking you were actually more doing John Inman, but you know, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, th but this is the thing. I think the, there is an expectation sometimes with certain speakers that they're going to be entertaining. So, you know, when someone hears Under Secretary of, of State to the Scottish Parliament, they're not expecting 10 minutes of gags. Yeah. <laughs> but Why the not? problem is. <laughs> Well, well, the problem is that, the, the, the problem is that sometimes speakers completely don't fit expectations, and you know you prepare yourself for a really. I, I once prepared myself for what I thought was going to be quite an entertaining talk on computer games, mm. and the guy gave us uh, his twenty-minute plenary had sixteen minutes on the ancient Greek education system. Oh boy! And you then had you then have unintentional humour because I told my boothmate who had thirty years of experience that you know I said to him, Pierre. Take the next shift off. It's a plenary on computer games. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I've been compu playing computer games since I was three. And do you know how off-putting it is to have a boothmate who's helping you follow the type notes, which are going crazy, mm. and trying not to chuckle while you're doing the, the swan thing? If you know, swimming like crazy underneath and trying to sound 
like this is really straightforward. Yeah, self-assurance and everything. It's the unintentional humour of being an interpreter is quite a hilarious job at times. Yeah, that is true. Alex, did you want to share that other story? And then I wanted to move on to uh, uh, the serious side of of humor. (laughs) The serious side of humor. I actually have this really nice story. It's it's actually one of my favorite interpreting stories of all times. And I was there with um, a fabulous booth mate. I don't think I could have done it with anyone else. And (laughs) this was basically an anniversary celebration for a local Bavarian brewery. So that already kind of sets the scene. You know, we were in this fake Oktoberfest beer tent situation. And um, in order to lighten the mood for the Bavarian guests of honor, for the German guests of honor, but also for everybody else who was, you know, international people from, I don't know, Dubai, Shanghai, Tokyo, you know, just like investors from all over the world, literally from all over the world. They invited two Bavarian cabaret acts. So literally stand-up comedians. One of them was this really famous lady in Bavaria and the other two were two Franconian guys who dress up as women and, you know, like these cranky old hags and they just kind of like heckle the audience in a way in a really strong accent as well. And uh, yeah, we were told that we had to interpret those two comedy acts. And honestly, it was the time of my life. I had the best time ever interpreting those two. It wasn't easy, but basically we just kind of made it fun. And Mm -hmm. um, at some point, I actually had to kick her out of the booth because it was my turn, obviously. It was my turn. And uh, yeah, she she just kept cracking up in the booth and I was just like (laughs) clicking on the mute button. And I was like, you have to leave because if you don't leave, (laughs) I'm going to crack up in the, on the microphone yeah. and that can't happen. But yeah, it, you just kind of make it work. And if you, if the joke doesn't travel, I mean, honestly, between you, me and the gatepost, this is obviously not going out to anybody else, but no. if you invite Bavarian comedians. <laughs> I'm not sure you really expect all the Bavarian in jokes to travel to your Shanghai delegates. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not really sure that's the expectation anyways. Yeah. So as long as you kind of like make them laugh, I feel like you've achieved the goal of lightening the mood and making it fun for them. So that's kind of what we did. We didn't translate verbatim what they were saying, but we made it fun. We exaggerated in a way that, you know, made them giggle and laugh. And I think I, I felt like we accomplished our mission. Well, that's no small feat. I mean, you, you make it sound quite easy, but um, rendering that in, in into English and sort of quote unquote international English seems like quite a challenge to me. Well, what it, it, he's saying is he's taking Matthew's job. <laughs> <laughs> Cue the white shark music. Exactly. Yeah, but it was actually quite fun. I mean, it, obviously it helped that it was for a brewery, so everybody was quite drunk. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, at the very end of the night, we actually had another guest of honor who was a really old friend of the person whose anniversary it was. And um, he came up there in order to wrap up the day, kind of summarize everything that had happened beforehand and he was just mm. way drunk it was kind of way past the point of no return and then you know, he stands up there and he's kind of like mumbling his little summary and then all of a sudden he goes this is like at 12 45 like one you know like in the middle of the night and all of a sudden he goes like oh that reminds me of a brilliant jew joke oh and no. i'm like uh, there's no oh. such thing yeah and i'm like that's a great idea oh great <laughs> way to go and then he made the joke and you know, I'm all for super inappropriate humor. For those of you who know me, I, the, the more inappropriate, the, the funnier it is. It's true though. But the joke just landed so flat. Like it was just such a hard crash. And but what did you do? We, I mean, you did have to interpret. You couldn't just... Well, yeah, like I had to interpret the joke. Also, he was super drunk and super slow. So there was no way for me to kind of like move around that because it was just like one word at a time. Oh, dear. So I had to kind of do it. And I was just really hoping to God that the uh, that the punchline was going to be good. But then <laughs> the, it was the worst. Like there was no punchline. He just said one thing and then he started laughing himself. And you literally heard the crickets in the room. And that's the point uh. when the when I had to kick out my booth mate again, because she was like literally la- laughing tears at this travesty of a situation. Yeah. Talking about watching a train wreck, right? Yeah, exactly. In <laughs> slow motion. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, oh dear. Too see, see, my favorite almost train wreck was I was doing a, 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 an interpreting job on deep sea fisheries policy. And we just spent like two hours saving this fish, which only lives on the Scottish coral reefs. Didn't realize we had Scottish coral, but we do. <laughs> um, so we, we go for lunch and in front of me is the, one of the senior 
Scottish representatives from the fisheries industry. And behind me is one of the leading environmentalists. And the Scottish fisherman, uh, fisherman's representative is chatting to his mate on, on the uh, lunch queue and saying, oh, but that fish is really good eating. Not realising there's the environmentalist just standing two places behind him. <laughs> so I found my booth mate who I've been working with for about eight years and I was like, Laura, I'd just like to tell you for the next 20 minutes I'll be in the bathroom. If you need me, I'm not coming back. <laughs> it, it was totally fine though because, I mean, they, they shook it off and they, and they laughed about it and they actually made a joke about it in the next session. Yeah. Um, and then the next session we ended up talking about some single-celled organism which no one could pronounce. So we all, everyone, including the scientists, ended up calling it Zeno, what do you call it? <laughs> Love it. And, and so you have these two kind of well-trained, suited and booted interpreters trying to, with a straight face, continually talk about the, the sad plight of the Zeno, what do you call it? <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay. Um, I did I like move it. on to something else because, um, as you all know, dear listeners, um, Jonathan literally wrote the book on interpreting. Um, and <laughs> the book. There's only one. The book. Don't tell Andrew Gillies. No. <laughs> Sorry, Andy. Uh, <laughs> he wrote a book on interpreting. Don't point. ruin my pun. Come on. Anyway, Jonathan wrote a book, and Matthew's in it, and uh, because there's one chapter on humor. Um, and uh, I think I mentioned it earlier in the introduction. I, I reread uh, the this chapter on humor. And I thought it was really, really, very interesting. So um, I was thinking maybe for, for those uh, among the listeners who haven't read the book yet, they should, of course, go out and, and buy it immediately yeah. right now. Uh, and you read it before Jonathan finishes his next one. Um, but you, you differentiate between three different kinds of humor in there, liberating humor, stress-relieving humor, and controlling humor. Um, and you also talk a little bit about how what humor has to do with creativity and how it can help us in interpreting. Can you sort of give uh, sort of a summary of, of what, what the idea of the, of the chapter was? So I was really trying to get to the point where we realized that it's okay to laugh at the absurdities of what we do. I mean, Matthew is, is, a, is a great one for showing us the absurdities of everything around interpreting. <laughs> Um, but there's a there's a realization that we have an incredibly stressful job. We have a job that, re, as we've already heard in this episode, requires large doses of creativity. And I guessed from my own experience that human and creativity had something to do with each other. So if I have a really difficult job to prep for, or if I'm doing writing, or if I have a really difficult talk to prep for, one of the first things that I do sometimes is sit and write silly satire for a satirical linguistics journal. And just take the rip out of something, you know, just just make do silly humor about something. And I find that loosens my thought processes that I can then go and do the serious academic work or whatever it is I need to do. I find it I find it opened me up. So I looked up the research and found out that not only is humor associated with health benefits, but that when you've just been in a humorous situation, you're more creative afterwards. And actually the workplace environment, the if you like the humanity and the the ability for people to be creative in their environment seems to be determined by whether there's humour there and what type of humour it is. So it was um, mm. Josephine Lang and Che Hoon Lee, uh, I borrowed their article, uh, quoted their article, and they talk about liberating humour, which is basically about just having fun, not necessarily at anyone's expense. Um, it's just about people playing with the rules around there and trying to bend them and even break them just to be silly. So imagine, you know, someone coming in, a suit and tie and interpreting, and instead of doing the whole, look at me, I'm a wonderful interpreter thing, they started doing some carry-on style slapstick humour. That's not making fun out of anyone, it's just being silly. And that kind of breaking the rules and merging ideas together is the main type of humour that they found was linked to being more creative. Um, I found it interesting that they said that the satirical humour and the kind of biting humour, uh, which they call controlling humour, seems to be a tool to kind of keep people in their little groups and eliminate people. And that seems to reduce creativity and reduce happiness. Um, and I think it's interesting that my experience is that the, the darker the situation that people are in, the more they resort to satire, almost, I think, as a defence mechanism. Um, and so it was really fascinating to read their study and to read other studies on, you know, they showed people 30 minutes of comedy and then got them to do a, a really weird challenge. 
and only the people who'd watched the comedy could do it. Mm. There's something about your brain trying to be funny <laughs> or or coming across something funny that instantly makes some other connection be made that wasn't there before. Um, and certainly, I mean, one of the things that I love about Troublesome Terps is that we have a lot of serious talks, but I think pretty much every episode we've had something funny happen. And I wonder whether that is part of the secret of what makes the show work, is we get the funny thing in the middle of deep talk. Yeah, there was even some humor in the mental health episode, if I remember correctly. Which yeah, really did surprise me, because that was heavy going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Still my favorite episode of all time. <laughs> yeah. Um, Although I say that to everyone. <laughs> but um, going back to the chapter on humor, uh, I said that Matthew was in it um, as well. What, what was the idea behind that, Jonathan? Or, or maybe Matthew, from your point of view as well? <laughs> well, I, I'll jump in first. The whole book, every, every one of the 10 main chapters has an interview with an expert for a couple of reasons. One, because when I wrote the book, and to a certain extent, I would still say it, that I'm not enough of an expert to be able to have opinions on all of these important things myself. So the idea of the book was I would have the main chap, the, a chunk of the chapter talking about what the research says and then hand over to someone who actually knows what they're talking about to get their opinion. Um, and it was a nice balance because someone asked me, you know, it's called being a successful interpreter. And someone said to me, are you a successful interpreter? Why, yes, I And am. I said, well, I know a few. <laughs> you know, that kind, of, that kind of took some of the criticism away that I could say, well, I interviewed a few. Matthew, did did you want to give your um, perspective as well? Did, did 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 you consider yourself a successful interpreter? Yes, if I'm in charge of measuring my own success, I think yep, one hundred percent, and one hundred percent expert on humour as well. So invited along as a special guest <laughs> to top the research and somehow add something special, even beyond what the research has shown and Jonathan has so eloquently explained. Uh, and if you're disappointed when you finally read the interview. <laughs> but I think the connection with mental health is a, is a very interesting one. And I'm glad that came up because I think a lot of our conversation so far this evening has been uh, not atypical in the sense that it's sounded a lot like therapy. And I think um, when Jonathan said that the more... Uh, pressure people are under or the more extreme the situation the more they reach out for certain types of humor i think is also <laughs> part of it that to stay staying you have to be able to step outside things and, and a, a very common reaction when stepping outside something is to laugh but also um we were talking about the challenges of interpreting humor but if we go back to putting ourselves in the delegates position if you're in a conference and you're enjoying an in joke perhaps because it's link limited to the profession or to other factors, you are enjoying it. It is building a connection. You have a sense of belonging yeah. as you enjoy that joke. And also the animal reaction, the animalistic feeling of there are people next to me laughing too. Mm. Laughing in a crowd is an immensely uh, kind of healing uh, process, I think. So if we can you know, reach out to that feeling too. I think that's one of the reasons why, as I said in the interview, interpreters tend to have a gallows humour when they switch off the mic. And we have this wonderful, vivid description from Alex of, you know, what's happening during the cabaret, but also uh, just as exuberant a reaction oh, yeah. from the booth mate when it's almost impossible for him to do his job as an interpreter and the situation a kind of nightmare failure. It's almost exactly the same exuberant reaction from the booth mate as when they were having the time of their lives and actually doing a very good job in difficult circumstances to get the, the foreign guests to enjoy themselves. So there, in, in terms of our kind of instinctive reaction, it's, it's very, very similar at both extremes. There's something about the, the mixture of adrenaline and, and perhaps uh, frustration that uh, it can lead to these exuberant reactions. I have heard people suggest that this kind of satirical pulling down humour is, is often used by those who feel in a state of powerlessness. So if you watch something like Have I Got News For You in the UK, there are people who are invited as guests on that show and they're making fun of something which is inherently out of their control. 
And so it's the satire there becomes funny because it's people in a, a state of perilousness who for you know a half an hour episode can metaphorically take a place of power by making fun of those who really hold the reins. And there's something about interpreting that, yeah, we, we have great power and with that comes great responsibility, you know, like all superheroes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we are superheroes. But on the other hand, there's an inherent powerlessness about interpreting that, you know, we are, yes. th- we, when the speaker goes down a line, especially in, in Sim, we have no control over where they're going to go next. Even, and I have to say, especially when you have their notes, you're basically like holding on to a runaway train and hoping that it's going to stop at some point um, and it's not going to completely crash. Mm. Um, It's why why I think some people try interpreting and never want to touch it again. And other people try interpreting and go, I love that thrill. It's like jumping out of an aircraft, knowing that you're going to hit the ground and just praying and hoping against hope that your parachute works. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm I'm glad that we came to this aspect of the of the whole humor thing which is um for example the uh, relationship between boothmates um because uh, alex told this story earlier with boothmates <laughs> cracking up and of course that can happen from time to time even when the meeting is not funny at all you know but some maybe you you had a slip of the tongue or maybe you you made a funny error or a mistake or something like that and suddenly you or a boothmate starts cracking up and you just can't control it and you can't stop yourself so you kind of have to leave the booth or you have to you know hand it over to the boothmate to leave the booth yourself <laughs> kind of thing is, is is nice and it remembers me of this one thing that um, Matthew said in in the book in the chapter um, where he said when it all goes horribly wrong I laugh it off um, with a shrug and tell my booth made a killer one liner. It might not help my interpreting, but it certainly helps my blood pressure. Um, now, I, I think that's certainly kind of a mix between the liberating humor and the stress relieving humor and also speaks to this, um, yeah, I think vague feeling of powerlessness um, where sometimes humor is, is really helpful to to deal with the stress as well, you know, um, or, or the, the mental stress and the mental pr- um, pressure that's going on. Could I introduce perhaps a different angle mm-hmm. on that of the power of humour? Because we've been talking about where it comes from and and why people use it and why we might use it. But I think, uh, uh, as you were quoting about the, the responsibility, although we don't necessarily have the radioactive blood that Spider-Man has, <laughs> uh, we do have the great responsibility. And um, th- that... There is a power which is unleashed when that connection is made. And sometimes it's about high status versus low status. And this is Mm. going to sound like one of those uh, pretentious um, French speakers that Jonathan was uh, talking about. But I think there's an element of dramatic irony here that if we feel clever in the audience because we can see something that somebody on stage can't see or looks as though they can't see, they appear to be taking themselves seriously, but we find it funny, or somehow they're undermined by somebody else's joke, Mm -hmm. then that is very powerful. And I think Nigel Farage is a very good example of of how that's used. I disagree with him on almost everything, and I certainly disagree with him in his criticism of the the former president of the European Council, uh, Herman Van Rompuy, (laughs) where uh, he was mocking him. but the way it played when he said, Mr. Van Rompuy, what we want to know is this. Who are you? You have the appearance of a low-grade bank clerk and all the charisma of a damp rag. Yeah. And then he was called upon to apologise for the remarks and said, of course that was insulting. I do apologise to all my friends who are bank clerks. <laughs> now, like I say, I don't agree with the point being made. I actually think that he... Uh, EU appointees are generally not charismatic populists precisely because they're the result of a lot of compromises, which makes the system more democratic rather than less. So I couldn't disagree with him more. Something about that works. Something about that makes it sound like he's saying the unsayable. It makes it sound like he's down the pub with us. He's a friend of Trump's, and you can see the, the power that this can have by building that connection to people and sounding as though you're giving a voice 
to the ordinary person. So political rhetoric, I think, has its limits too if it doesn't uh, harness this this power of humour as well. And I think that's maybe why, I know this is going off topic slightly, but that's why populism is popular because there's something about feeling like there's an everyman speaking what quote-unquote truth to power. Um, and there's something about understanding how to harness that and understanding that you know actually it's natural to want to do that and it's natural that people are attracted to that kind of humor even if we don't actually agree with what's behind it um i was reading scott adams who wrote the delbert cartoons and he was talking about that the key to his humor was to make the to have the punchline and then to have a secondary one underneath because he said, you know, people expect the first punchline, but what makes them laugh is the punchline that comes after the punchline. And the remarks that you talked about from Nigel Farage are exactly that kind of humour where he said something that sounds unsayable and to a certain person sounds funny in itself. And then to hit the same thing again in the apology and to use irony again actually makes would make some people, even if they didn't find the original joke funny, would might make might make them laugh anyway. And I think this is the thing that the, there's, there's this double thing going on of, oh, we expect you to be funny here, but hold on, you've, you've done it again. Um, that it, it does make people sit up and take notice. And even I think, you know, I, I was I'm in the middle of writing a chapter called um, How Interpreters Wreck Their Own PR for the New Book. And one of the points I'm making is we've been I'm going to make is that we've been far too serious and we have been far too buttoned up for our own good. That when people say, you know, when people start making claims about replacing us with machines, they don't see and they don't understand all of this creativity and all of this humor that goes into just being able to do the job. Yeah, I trump I, I sometimes try to leverage just a, a mild dose of humor to establish a rapport with the delegates. So for example, um I think I picked this up from a colleague who who went into retirement a few years ago. Um, because sometimes when um, somebody was speaking in the room and the mic was off, she would say, well, uh, the mic is unfortunately off, so what the speaker is saying is, le- is lost for eternity or something like that, which, which kind of su- sounded funnier when she said it in, in German. Um, so I kind of picked that up and um, it kind of diffuses the situation and it lets the delegate know that, oh yeah, well, that was the interpreter. I, I'm actually not listening to the speaker directly. And, and I think that's that's nice um, and, and, and can be helpful as well. But it's probably not traditional uh, interpreting etiquette, I guess. I, I am desperate because every interpreter has had those occasions where you think you've pressed the button and you haven't. The next time that that happens to me and I've accidentally not turned the mic on for any reason, I'm going to say the interpreter apologises for his accidental foray into the world of mime. Why the third person, though? We have to talk about that in, in another episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, well, but but this is this is another thing. Like you know, with how many professions address themselves in the third person? Are we that important that you know we have to talk like the Queen? Uh, you, your interpreter on this believes that there has been a misunderstanding. It's a purely technical reason, isn't it? My understanding has always been that because we use the first person in our work it would sound as though we were yeah. still being the speaker if we used the first person. Yeah. So the only way to really be in the first person is to be in the third person. <laughs> mm, I like where this is going. Which, which does sound like we have a severe case of multiple personality disorder. This interpreter is inclined to agree with you. <laughs> but, I, I mean, this is one of the things I, it was a side note in my PhD um, and I was t- chatting to a guy who's looking at interpreting the theatre and he and I have decided that one day we're going to write a book on interpreting as performance. Mm, because yeah. I think, and I, I remember suggesting this to an interpreter and then being absolutely scandalized that I would say interpreting was performance. But, you know, anyone who's been on the stage, my first degree included a big slab of theater studies. And, you know, the definition of performance is that basically you have someone playing a role in front of an audience and they're doing it consciously. Yeah. That's exactly what interpreting is. Exactly. Um, and there are all sorts of weird psychological tricks that happen with that that I think we haven't explored. So there's, there's a really interesting line from Richard Schechner who said that the performer is simultaneously aware that they are not me 
because they're performing and yet they're not not me because they realize that there's a person who's doing the performance and that's them and i thought that's a really nice and this whole first third person thing it's a really nice summary of interpreting that we know that we're not speaking our own words but we are still the person doing the speaking and it's like maybe that's where some of the humor comes from is the disconnect between being essentially a disembodied voice and yet still there being a person behind the disembodied voice Maybe that's where some of the weird humor comes from in interpreting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is completely like conception, like a dream in a dream in a dream. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Matthew, is that kind of the same for comedians that you're aware when you're on stage that your your job is to make people laugh? Um, and I know, to be serious for a minute, there have been a, a, a number of comedians who have struggled, struggled precisely with mental health. Um, is it a tension? Do you find any kind of tension or relief maybe when you're doing stand-up that you know can you use more of you than when you're interpreting or do you think you're it's still kind of a performer mode thing so there's still this not me thing of i'm here to make you laugh i'm not here to be matthew i'm here to be funny guy uh yes i think there are uh elements of both i think you are ultimately in control of your own material as as a stand-up but not always as an actor or as a as a sketch performer I think a lot of the anguish that interpreters feel at uh, their powerlessness is very different to what a performer feels. But I think the the counterpart to that is the switching off the mic and walking away and just not having to care anymore after an interpreting assignment. The yeah. complete opposite. I mean, even after the best gig in the world, you're sitting on the night bus thinking, oh, if only I'd done that slightly differently, I'd timed that slightly differently. Mm. Um, and you're looking at the scribble on your hand saying, oh, no, I can't believe I didn't even do that punchline. Um, even after the best gig in the world, and you can imagine what it's like if there has ever been a silence where there shouldn't have been. And so that, <laughs> I think, in terms of long-term mental health is... Uh, a huge challenge for people. And I think it cuts both ways because I think if you have a really good run, that is a high, which if there is anything of you in the performer, you, then that is uh, very flattering for the ego and very hard to replace in any other way. And I think that's also one of the reasons why um, people can become unstuck, especially after early success that they can go through a really rough patch because they find it hard to put in perspective this idea of, uh, you were saying, you know, you're just the funny guy and it's not really you. But if you don't separate that properly and you actually think, mm -hmm. oh, this crowd loves me, then you're setting yourself up for a lot of very, very uh, tricky problems further down the line. And I think that there's, a, I mean, I'm aware when I'm interpreting, I'm aware of how much of my life I've spent doing public speaking. Um, and I try not to get carried away, but when you realise how speakers think and what's go the good ones, um, you can see the risks that are going on and you almost say, you almost feel like you're trying to be them as well as being used. It's a really, being an interpreter is quite a confusing thing, but it's funny you should talk about, you know, you switch off the mic and you don't care anymore. Most of the time when I'm interpreting, um, even when it's just a one day job, it, I'll switch off the mic, go home and I'll be on the bus and precisely I'll be doing, ah, if, I, if only I got this right. And I find it especially the case if I'm working with a client that I'm fairly new to and my boothmate had previous experience there. I find it mm. really easy. So I did one recently, which was on, I can't even say which industry because there's only one company in that industry in the part <laughs> of Scotland that I was in. But we were in a certain industry and it just so happened that my booth mate had worked exactly for that company before a couple of years ago. So on things like the factory tour, he kind of basically pushed me out the way, you know, like Norman Wisdom used to push people away in his act. My boothmate kind of pushed me out the way and went, it's okay, I'll deal with it. And he did a two-hour factory tour and safety thing without my help at all. And to be honest, I was no use. And I, I went home after that job thinking, ah, if only I'd prepared better. And then it wasn't until the next morning I realized, well, there's no preparation better than having been there before. And I thought, you know, if, if if he was dropped into some of the jobs that I've done before, then I would look like the expert and he would look like the one struggling. I mean, that job, uh, 
I had some good moments, but I also had some really daft moments. Like they were talking about the importance of reversing into your parking space in the car park to stop people getting run over. And because in French is marche arrière, I misunderstood and started talking about the need to walk backwards when you're going through the car park. <laughs> that in itself is hilarious humor. Can you just acknowledge that? Yeah. So, so, that reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> See, I don't actually find Seinfeld funny. <laughs> Monty Python, yes. Seinfeld, no. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's an acquired taste. I don't know. Um, I don't know how you feel about this. Should we try to, um, because we, we've, we've talked about a lot of different things, um, and sometimes in our episodes, we, we try to do the sensible thing towards the end, and we try to sort of wrap it up and, and try to draw conclusions or, you know, provide a few tips. Um, and I don't know if that's even possible, because, I mean, we've, we have a few things here in our in our in our script about ways of dealing with humor or dealing with jokes, but... Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we want to go there, if you know what I mean. If you know what I mean. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Oh, no, we, we need to work on that, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> see, see now, Alex Kansmeyer should do that as John Enman. It would be really funny. Well, what, you're not wearing is, what, you're not, what you don't know is that I'm wearing a fedora and a big hat. It's very, it's very May West over here. <laughs> it's, it's a whole thing. Yeah, it's more like prop comedy. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Prop interpreting it. <laughs> you just say, take one of these. And then yes. together with it. one of these. And, then it can and you wave your pen around and your, and your notepad. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's one of these things. I, I love factory tours just because they're inherently funny. Because, I mean, I was doing one job where can't even remember what industry it was, but everyone who worked in that industry was built like a Sherman tank and looked like, you know, they could kill you by staring at you. And so we're wandering around and you could tell who the interpreters were because the the um, safety hats that we had on were bigger than our heads. <laughs> well, that's the idea, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we just oh, unzipped them. Like, that's indeed like someone took their coat off. <laughs> um, but yeah, we... we we just looked totally out of place. And yet everyone's turning to the interpreters to tell them, you know, this laser cutting thing or whatever. And there's naturally a human in the fact that you have to, if you can't fake expertise, you can't be an interpreter. <laughs> it's kind of like, um, what do you mean fake? <laughs> well, someone asked me like, an imposter here. Hashtag imposter syndrome. <laughs> I, I, w I was joking with someone asked me because a um, couple of years ago I was up in Inverness and I did carbon fiber manufacturer manufacturing and then two days later I did mountain tourism and someone said to me how do you cope going from carbon fiber to mountain tourism and I said well the dictionary definition of a conference interpreter is someone who can be a fake expert on anything if you give them a week yeah and it, and it was great. I mean, it's when the mountain tourism guys are like, you know, we've got a canoe parked here if you would like to go canoeing. I'm like, um, no. <laughs> Let's not do that. Did you not feel comfortable faking canoe expertise? Well, I would have to fake swimming first. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's tricky, though. Yeah, but I think I think it would actually be nice if we could kind of try to get like a little takeaway for the episode. So... You know, I'll have a chicken fried rice, please. On, just a little hands-on thing for our listeners. Next time they run into a bad joke at a, a conference, <laughs> it's probably mine. Do, uh, <laughs> well, you know, Jonathan, we can always just mute the podcast, but in a real-life interpreting situation, not quite as easy. So, uh, Matthew, I don't know. Maybe you want to kick things off as the guest of honor. Uh, you want me just to wrap like, up the takeaway for you? Well, yeah. <laughs> the takeout. <laughs> um. So I, I would say in, in any adversity, uh, when we don't know the word, when we can't translate the joke, when we've just lost the will to live, I think turn <laughs> to camera and say, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> just make sure you brought a camera before. <laughs> oh my God, he just totally stole my thing. I think it is it is perfect because it, it covers up any approximation <laughs> in your delivery. 
Yeah. It flatters the listener's intelligence because it assumes that despite your own shortcomings, the listener knows perfectly well what the speaker intended. So everybody's happy. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, one thing, one thing that I was thinking about trying to sort of extract a conclusion from, from all of this, which has been hilarious and a lot of fun, by the way, was um, what is actually the challenge of interpreting a joke or humor? It could be irony, could be sarcasm, could be a pun, could be wordplay. Um, it, I think the first challenge or, or, or the biggest challenge probably is, is to get the joke in the first <laughs> place because if we don't get the joke, you know, it's kind of difficult to, to bring it across, don't That's you think? That's true. Well, I think also, and this is me putting my researcher hat on, which is bigger than my head, <laughs> putting, my re <laughs> putting my researcher hat on, it's not just... That's a very big head. One of the, the things that I've realized is that you can find the joke funny, but not realize what its function is. Yeah. So, so there are some jokes which are there just to make people chill out and, you know, following stereotypes, we'd expect the Americans and the Brits to do that. But there are other jokes that are there to do something very specific. Maybe they're to give people a sense of power when they're struggling. You know, I'm expecting that for the next two years, every conference is going to have some kind of Brexit joke in it. Oh. Because, you know, there's a sense of no one has a clue what's going to happen. So the only thing we can do is laugh at it. <laughs> Reminds me of the GDPR so, situation. It's also jokes. Uh, that it's, it truly is. Well, I was talking to someone who, who told me that they knew a, a really good GDPR consultant and I said, can you give me their name and email address? And they said, no. <laughs> <laughs> you knew there was a GDPR joke there somewhere. Yeah. It's only like to stay department. on file for two years, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think my takeaway is, uh, you know, Matthew already kind of stole it, but if you try to do, if you try to go for the joke, if you don't just say the, the speaker's minute joke, please laugh, which quite frankly, I've never done. Um, yeah, me neither. <laughs> but I feel so it was bad the, the urban legend of interpreting. Yeah, but no, honestly, like I was in a booth with a colleague who did that, and I'm no shade, but I'm not sure if he would have been able to pull off the jokes. So I think in that instance, it would have been it was the right move. <laughs> no, just because you know he's not that he's a very mellow, very reserved type of guy. So I'm not sure he could have pulled off uh, if you know what I mean. You know, like <laughs> it would have just been. I mean, I would have obviously cracked up had he done that, but I think in that instance, it was the right move for him to make, but I've never done it. And I think if you try to, if you tackle a joke hat on and kind of halfway through, you figure out that you're not going to make the joke work, just kind of make it funny in any, in any other way. Cause it's really, really not about the joke itself. It's usually just about getting the effect of the joke across. So if, if you can't make it work, make it. Well, unless the speaker is then riffing on it for 20 minutes. Oh, yeah, oh. then of course you're kind of screwed and you have to make it work another way. But my yeah. point is very, very Tim Gunnian. Just make it work. Tim, who's, okay. Tim, who's Tim Gunnian? What's well, Tim Gunn, but... Oh. You don't even know who Tim Gunn is, admitted. <laughs> no, I don't have a yeah, shot. There you go. <laughs> well, there were a lot of names in this episode that I didn't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> If we have one takeaway, I think, which applies both to telling a joke and interpreting a joke is, if you try, make it work. Yeah. Well, the, the, the other thing is that um, the number of times that I've tried to tell jokes, um, I, I tried to tell a joke recently in Vienna, and the first joke worked, the second joke, everyone's like, you know, the crickets are beginning to chirp. <laughs> and so I said, well, that was funny in my head. And suddenly everyone laughed. <laughs> and it's amazing how much funnier you can make make a joke by saying, well, it was funny in my head. And yeah. suddenly everyone finds it hilarious. It was funny when I wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even write it down. I, just, <laughs> I, I have this problem. I take a, my problem is that I have humor addiction. So if I see one funny thing and people laugh, I feel compelled to try and find another funny thing to say. <laughs> it's, it must be... Behavior. It is, it's like, you know, you it's Matthew's you love me thing. But anyway, my one takeaway is that interpreting, yes, it's about professionalism. It's about all this stuff that we talk about, but it's also about having fun. And a lot of us do it because we actually enjoy it. So even with humor, which we traditionally look at as if it was some kind of wild beast about to attack us, 
make the whole process fun. And if you have to say, you know what I mean, or, well, it was funnier <laughs> when the speaker said it, that's going to naturally make people laugh anyway. That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, don't be but, afraid to make fun of yourself because yeah. that's funny. But that's exactly the point. Usually yeah. that's a laugh out of everybody. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because usually what happens is, you know, the, the, one of the most <laughs> terrible thing is it could be A, when the speaker says, I'm now going to share a quote from X or whatever. And then you say, <gasps> oh my God. Robert Burns. Yeah. <laughs> and the Quite second one is, I'm now going to tell a joke. Uh. And usually when they say, I'm now going to tell a joke, I'm actually looking forward to it. Whereas most <laughs> or many people actually say, oh my God, I want to die right yeah. now. Okay, well, <laughs> on that happy note, thank you very much, first of all, to Matthew Perret for joining us on the show. Thank you. And uh, yeah, it was great to have you on. Time <laughs> of my life, if you know what I mean. <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> that, that, that's one moment where that line really wasn't appropriate. <laughs> no, I think it was a perfect fit. <laughs> that's perfect. When, that went south way quicker than I thought it would. <laughs> yeah. Well, that happens. If you know what I mean. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, thank you to my lovely co-hosts, Jonathan and Alexander, as well, for, for joining me once again on this episode. Um, and the usual stuff, real quick. If you want to leave a comment on this episode, you can do so on our website, troubleturps.com, which has a fresh new layout now and uh, images for, individual images for each and every episode. Um, you can find us on social media as well, on Twitter. We're at troubleturps, and we're on Facebook as well facebook.com slash troubleturps uh what else well we have a live event coming up in london in november and you will hear about it on the podcast feed as well of course and that's enough for today looking forward to the next episode talk to you soon and bye bye troubleturps out troubleturps out the difference between a British speaker, an American speaker and a French speaker. British and American speakers fancy themselves as stand-up comedians. French speakers just fancy themselves.